This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. Hi there, my name is Uyên Nguyen, or Nguyen Trần Tố Uyên, and I am based in Seattle. My background is that I became a refugee when I was 10. My career was in uh, sciences and also in business, and I'm currently in for-profit entrepreneurship and also more of a social entrepreneur also. Hi, I'm Tantung or Tung Tok Jung Tan, and I'm coming at you from Seattle, Washington. My life revolves around storytelling in one way or another. I was a journalist for many years for traditional media outlets, um, television, radio, online, for the newspapers. I went into the tech sector for about five years and uh, more recently switched over and now do public affairs and storytelling for um, a global coffee company that some people might recognize. <laughs> but um, but really, I think a lot of my identity and my work revolves around trying to make sense of what it means to be Vietnamese. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. In the last year, it was mostly focused on Viet Fact Check. I was really obsessed with this idea of trying to fight misinformation and disinformation that has been targeted at our Vietnamese community. So I actually, that's my connection to Wien. Wien and I have been friends for several years because we're both, um, we both have a bias for action. And I had heard about this really dynamic person and people just kept telling me about her until we finally met. And um, we can tell you more about that story later, but she really pushed me to get involved with Pivot last year to take action. And so Viet Fact Check became um, sort of my baby. And so that was something that I co-founded with some really dedicated people around the country um, because we were trying to solve an urgent issue. And then four months ago, when um, Kabul fell, um, once again, felt the pull to do something, felt that there was a problem or a situation here that we could take action on. And Wien was the instigator for that. Um, so thanks a lot, Wien. My family, thanks you for taking me away from them. Um, but, you know, so she was the one who instigated all this. And so Viets for Afghans has become uh, my other baby child of late. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. And first of all, thank you both for spending time. I know right now is a really busy time. You have a lot of um, stuff going on. Uh, I uh, Wynn said before you got on the call that you have a, um, a segment with Lester Holt tonight. We are a few days away from, from Christmas, and this is why this episode is really near and dear to me, because um, we as a community um, should mobilize and activate to do what we can for um, any refugee community. So let me start by asking you, Tan, um, why is the Vietnamese activation important to the situation with the Afghanistan refugees? It's important for us to speak up because uh, we have a shared lived experience with what a lot of Afghans are going through right now. 
Um, for Vietnamese Americans, our origin story really does begin with April 30th, 1975. That's when Saigon fell um, to communist forces, um, or North Vietnamese forces, and that altered, that changed the trajectory of all of our lives, all of us who were on here. And um, we've had nearly 50 years to sort of process and understand what was the impact of that war, what was the impact of many of our families having sided with the Americans um, and being on the losing side of that conflict. Um, we know what that feels like. We know what it feels like to Maknuk, you know, or lose your country, lose your way of life, and to be considered um, less than or the enemy. And um, I think that when we look at the Afghans, we're seeing the first wave and we can't help but think about, there was a first wave of Vietnamese refugees who came in 1975. I think your family, weren't you part of the 75 wave, Ken? Yes, and we, we'll get into that, the sponsorships and all of that too. So I think that it's important for us to take a look back at our own history and to find the context and to leverage whatever lessons that we can to try to help with the current situation. We're watching history repeat itself. We know that um, there are many lessons that we learned because in the last 50 years, each wave of Vietnamese refugees has helped sort of the next wave of refugees or immigrants who've arrived. And we're sort of out of our refugee experience at this point. You know, we just, we've had a lot of time to, to process um, what happened. And so I think that we understand that when people are in a desperate situation, they will do desperate things. And there's a reason why for many of our families, we grew up watching um, all of these new Vietnamese refugees, our families expanded because people were fleeing and escaping Vietnam. Um, and uh, this is the time to ensure that we are helping as many Afghans as we possibly can because they are at just the beginning of their refugee journey. So if we can save lives by sharing our own stories and by reminding people of this is what happened with our history, perhaps we can prevent a lot of suffering um, and carnage and death and all sorts of other trauma. Um, that uh, I'm very worried that you know our Afghan friends and allies are going to be um, experiencing in the coming years. Wynn, why is it important for you? What what encouraged you to start the the movement? Oh yeah, um, I think for me, uh, a lot of the work that I do really revolve around just the humanitarian side, you know, and um, there's there are few things that make someone uh, have such a humbling experience as being a refugee. Uh, and I can just share how I felt, you know, when we left when I was 10, I really just had this glorious, you know, dream of what my future would look like and um, getting on this big ship, you know, sailing off to America. And, um, and I was a child. I mean, I was only 10, so I didn't, I, I didn't really understood all the suffering. So I, I really can't say that, you know, I escaped because of all the suffering that was in Vietnam. But it was like this hope and dream. And um, and within a span of 10 days, I watched uh, two, uh, three of the people that I loved the most in my life uh, completely, you know, uh, um, I guess, uh, what's the right word but basically they pass away and not only that they pass away have to watch their body being tossed into the ocean you mm -hmm. know and um 
And what it really taught me at an early age is that no matter who we are as human, tragedy can happen to us so quickly and our life can just be uh, turned upside down. And I think being a refugee really epitomize that you know it, it just it's really it's this human experience where you, your livelihood gets stripped away your profession gets stripped away your identity even gets stripped away people start misspelling your name you know you don't have a place to call home and just all that and human us human we don't have to be a refugee to go through those kind of experiences you know you can be in a bad car accident, you know, somebody you love can certainly have cancer and just your life just turn upside down. So for me, it's really is like this life turn upside down kind of experience that get me to really empathize with a lot of people who, who go through similar things. And, and now going back to the whole refugee uh, experience for the Afghan community, what got me to really uh, act on it is that one, I just knew that their life is going to be turned upside down. It's just very similar to what we went through. But not only that, we as Vietnamese refugee kind of know what the consequences and the next step that will happen to them, even though they might not know it themselves. You know, uh, the losing of their country, being so confused when they come to this country, not even knowing the language and just all of that. Like, and because we have lived it, I felt that it was our obligation to really do something about it. And frankly, for me, the goal was very simple. I just want them to know that there are people out there that care. And that group of people are the Vietnamese people. And that's why we even chose our name to be very intentional, Viet for Afghan. We want them to know that the Vietnamese community are here for them, that the loneliness that they feel, we get it and we want to support them. The loss of hope that they have, you know, that we want to be able to tell this our story to show that, you know, ho however the tragic, the, tra the, the tragedies and the path that they went through, there is hope. There is a future and all of that. And so essentially what we want to do is be there for them and also share our story with them and help them also elevate their story so that there is a, a community of hope, their community of, I think, healing too, you know, and along the way, uh, hopefully inspire a lot of other Vietnamese to do the same and other community to also do the same and be there for the Afghan community, like how other community were there for us when we first uh, made our journey as refugees. So I want to go back to the beginning. Um, you're sitting in your living room or wherever you're working and you see this Kabul on TV. Um, this is all going down. What happens next? So I was actually watching, uh, not even watching TV. I was uh, having dinner with my husband uh, in uh, our patio. And, you know, I was on my phone just kind of uh, sometimes uh, scanning through all the media, whether it's social media or sometimes the YouTube. I, basically, I was clicking through a lot of things because it was um, at a point where it, it disturbed me a lot. And um, I just remember just pausing on my uh, dinner and I just started texting Tan and some other friends. I was like, we got to do something. Oh, wow. you know? And um, and that's how Before Afghan started. We just started discussing among each other like, are we in are we going to do this what are we you know what are we going to do and we committed to each other that we'll do something uh so and then ton how did you get involved i mean 
texts going back and forth, uh, you know, what's going on in your mind? Yeah, um, well, I think we in time that at the right time, because I, I remember that Sunday waking up uh, in August, waking up and seeing the news on social media first, and then turning on cable news and just being totally shocked. And I am not a refugee, I'm a child of boat people, but I think that it's really critical for me to remember that my parents fled Vietnam by boat, um, escaped three years after the fall of Saigon. So. I just was thinking like, I, I saw my parents, I saw our, our families and our aunts and uncles on television. When you see people clinging to airplanes and you see people scrambling and running and um, it, it just felt like, I think I've seen this. I feel like I've seen it before. And in, in a lot of ways, I believe intergenerational trauma is real. And um, so it was, it pulled, it pulls at your heartstrings and it just makes you it does make you feel compelled to do something. So when Leanne texted, um, that's when, you know, I think she had mentioned that, um, she had mentioned that, hey, like, you know, didn't Washington State, like Washington State was very welcoming to the first wave of, of refugees. And um, there was a very early system and that's true. And as a journalist at the Seattle Times, I had done quite a bit of reporting on this um, chapter in Washington State history. So in 1975, the very first wave of Vietnamese refugees were brought to Camp Pendleton and to other military bases around the country. And Washington State Governor Dan Evans, um, a Republican, was the very first in the state or in the country to welcome the Vietnamese refugees, to send an aide down to take a look at the camps, what was going on, who are these people, humanized these Vietnamese people um, who were brought here very unexpectedly. Um, and Ralph Monroe was the Secretary of State at the time, and he went down, he came back and he said, you know, these people, they seem scared, they seem bewildered, but they've got skills and why don't we, why don't we bring them up here? And so that led to uh, an exodus of, I think, from the camp of like initially like 500 people, like were like, hey, we don't have anywhere else to go. Let's just go to Washington State. And that included a lot of um, friends and family and people that I know here in Washington. That's how they ended up here in the Seattle area. So it felt like, why don't we pull from that legacy and do something? At the time, we know that communities, churches, heeded this call from the governor to step up, to house refugees, to help refugees with jobs, to befriend us, to help teach us English. They helped us um, take tests to get into state civil service jobs, you know, things like that. And you think about that, and that's so extraordinary that there was no system at the time. These were just people who responded um, to this request to do something to help. And, and people, a lot of people did. And I grew up with certain white people, you know, who were around us. And I always knew that, you know, they were they were friends and they made my family feel like wow. we did belong, even though we felt very, I knew we were different. I knew we were different, but Roger and Jerry, you know, tell my dad to call them mom and dad and treat them like family. And so when you see that kind of, um, I think love and support, it's super inspiring. So when Wynn said we need to do something, we knew the first thing was going to be some of these refugees are being brought here. We know that they're on their way. The refugee agencies, what are they telling us they need? And they're telling us that they need housing. So that was why we decided maybe the first thing is let's sponsor. Somebody sponsored us. So let's try to sponsor some Afghan refugees and return this favor, you know, or pay it forward as they so, say. So what's the first thing uh, when that you do, you reach out to the refugee agencies or what's the first thing that um, the, 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 the action item that you 
have to think of. <clears throat> Sorry, my throat is hurting a little bit. <clears throat> yeah, the first thing that we did actually was just discuss them on ourselves. You know, I, I think that when you do you when you work within a volunteer organization or just a volunteer group, you have to make sure that all your team members are very passionate about the specific project that we're working with. And so we had a very long well long as in text you know it was firing back and forth and all that and we basically i think i i was the one who proposed to say that you know let's figure out what is the bottleneck for resettlement agency and be the the one that helped them unlock that mm -hmm. so that in that way we can resettle as many refugees as possible and get refugee from the camp you know over to more permanent housing and so <clears throat> And the team was uh, on board with that. So essentially what we decided to do was that we would uh, activate at least 75 Vietnamese um, to offer up their home for um, temporary housing. And how we got to that temporary housing equation was that during this period, we have been watching, all of us have been kind of like following the news and following uh, the resettlement agency and hearing about what was the bottleneck. And they were saying that the bottleneck was really in the temporary housing kind of space because they needed that bridge in order for them to um, have buy time to find permanent housing for the refugees. So we <clears throat> called that first project 75 Vietnamese for um, 75 Afghan family. And then we just pushed out a call. We worked with a group, uh, an Afghan group in Seattle that was working with the resettlement agency to kind of like parse out um, the the donation and the help and all of that. So that was the pr first project that we, we worked on. Tan, do you have anything else to add to that? Um, well, on the number 75 is significant just because we felt that that was when Vietnamese started coming to the U.S. en masse. And so why not take that and try to create some kind of a catchy story like from the get goes like there's a story that needs to be told here. So how do we get attention on that? And so the 75 for 75 was was one way to do it. And I think that the other thing, too, was as much as we were all feeling this. I think it was also in the back of our minds, we have to remember that we're Vietnamese and they're Afghans. And so we need to center this on what the Afghan community is actually telling us, which mm -hmm. is why we immediately did the outreach to Afghan Health Initiative, which at the time was a trusted, it still is a trusted agency that has direct connection to the Afghan community. Um, we didn't want this to be all about um, what the Vietnamese community wanted to do. It's not about what we experienced and then transferring that. It's really trying to um, update and talk about like this concept of mutual aid. You know, how do we do that in 2021? So um, yeah, but the housing then shifted to other needs and it's hard to believe that it's only been four months, but I will tell you that Sunday was the day that the, that cobble fell. Monday is when we texted all of us um, Thursday, we launched our social media and decided to call this Viets for Afghans. And then Friday is when we had our first team meeting and it just took off from wow. there. So this just happened. It, it truly, it happened organically and it happened really quickly. Can I go back to that um, statement you just made about mutual aid, which is um, oftentimes we think we know what's better for other people, um, whether we're parents or whether we're refugees trying to help other refugees. Was there a difference in what we thought um, the 70, in the organization 75 Viets for, for Afghan 
Afghanistan. Did, was there any difference that stuck out uh, for your team that, wait, this is what we think is good for you, and then they said, no, no, no. Did, was there any stark differences? Um, well, yeah, I think there are there are differences because we're talking about two different countries, two different conflicts, two different wars. Um, we're talking about two different languages. Um, we are talking about, you know, the Vietnam War, technically the U.S. was there for more than 10 years, but the war itself was about 10 years. The war in Afghanistan has been going on for 20 years. So the type of like relationships that I think Afghans have with the U.S. government and U.S. forces um, over the last 20 years is very different from the relationship that I think many of us had with the, you know, U.S. government. So I think it's just the different eras is one thing. The language is another thing. And then it was knowing that um, religion, you know, many of the Afghans, they speak, um, they speak a different language, but they're also, many of them are Muslim. So, you know, they're not different religion. And so I think um, we knew that the cultural differences were definitely going to be there. Um, a lot of these refugees, like their diet, they eat differently from Vietnamese as well. Um, you know, but but I think the basics we understood was it was sort of the same, right? But I think the challenge, the bigger challenge for us was trying to get this jump started and to get Vietnamese families to host their homes or host refugees in the middle of a pandemic. Like that's huge. And I mean, first of all, Vietnamese, it's weird because for us, when we came, a lot of our families, it's like, oh, yeah, I had 11, 12 people. We were crammed like sardines into a, a studio or a one bedroom, you know? And so, like, we're okay because we're family. We really want to stay together. It's interesting because it's a lot to ask Vietnamese families nowadays. Well, you have a family of eight. Is that okay? <laughs> like, it just doesn't, you know, it's like we're in the middle of a pandemic and that's just, that's not our culture either. And so it quickly turned into, I can't house people because of the pandemic or because I'm not comfortable. I have immunocompromised, you know, whoever in my household, but we want to help pay for their hotel or their motel or help to pay for their rent. Um, we had Vietnamese people who were, I think some of the most impressive um, responses that we got were from elder Vietnamese who wrote to us in Vietnamese, you know, and they're like, oh, back on ya, what all back on the tinang, back by ya, back on the trailer, back on share, you know, wow. come and like, you know, and it's here, <laughs> stories like that. And, you know, and it's like trying to explain to them, it's like, we can't just go pick up these refugees and put them in your trailer, you know, even though <laughs> it's amazing that yeah. like you want to do that, you know, but. Um, it's, it, it uh, I, I think we just, we did not anticipate the process was going to be what it has turned out, um, what it has turned out to be. When, would you like to add to that? Um, no, I think she covered quite a bit of it. I, I, I think that for us, uh, we came aware of a lot of these differences, you know, so it's not so much that we learn along the way is that. Uh, I think we're decently culturally competent folks and being part of being culturally competent is to just admit that you don't know something, mm. you know, Good and point. for us, we, we tackle that pretty much from day one. We say we don't know this. We don't know the language, you know. Yes, I, I, I as a restaurant owner, I know that, you know, Muslim culture, uh, especially um, uh, fairly religious uh, group. Uh, want to eat halal meat, you know, for example. So I, I knew that, but that doesn't mean I really know what uh, all the things that is necessary to make the Afghan family feel very welcome and comfortable and, and so on. So we reach out to the Afghan community right away to start working with them. And we have, you know, uh, a friend of mine who became our advisor 
who is Afghan. And so, um, so I would say, you know, a lot of these things we're aware that different, there were different, but we, uh, we basically tried to bridge it by making sure the expert are always there at the table and expert in the Afghan community, the Afghan themselves are at the table to advise us along the way. I have a really random question. I have to get out of the way. Sure. Okay, so there's Afghan, Afghani, Afghanistan. There's different modes of describing things. So can somebody break that down? Like why you hear Afghani, why you hear just Afghan? Um... Yeah, so I don't think Afghani is the proper word to address people. It's actually more like the, uh, um, the monetary, you know, um, 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 it's, it's kind of like saying Oriental and, and, oh. you know, and Asian, uh, kind of thing. And so, um, yeah, so Afghan is, is the proper way to address the people. Wow. This and, is good to know. Um, I'm glad yeah. I asked it really. So Afghani is like sort of derogatory. I wouldn't, sorry, I didn't mean it to be that way, but it's more like associated with a thing versus, you know, um, calling someone Afghan, you know? So, um, and then of course, Afghanistan is just the country. The country. So, so um, when we think about our resettlement, it was kind of simpler with the religion because a lot of us were Catholic or some were Christians and the other groups Buddhist. were Buddhists, right? But now you're dealing with something totally different, which is you're dealing with um, Ho Yao, you're dealing with Muslims, but you have this layer of the last 46 years living in the US of the way some of our older um, communities, Vietnamese communities see the Muslim population. Can you both speak to the challenge of that sort of um, optics, the difference in that? I, <laughs> I guess, you know, because of, um, because of like, I, I've had so many conversations with different people. I'm not going to name them because I don't want to, I don't think it's intentional to um, be xenophobic, you know, or to have this prejudice against like Muslims. But I have heard this rhetoric though of um, it's too bad they're Muslim. You know, it's too bad when we came here, you know, we came to help America. We didn't come to hurt America. We didn't come, you know, and there's this notion we've sort of whitewashed our own um, history a little bit. And sometimes the conversations that I will have with people who mention this difference is, you know, it's like back when we were coming, everyone was afraid of communism. Yeah. So you know, like 36% um, approval rate during that period, which is you know, low. <laughs> yeah. They did not welcome uh, communists, you know, meaning yeah. us. So I, mean, I think we came yeah. in the midst of a cold war. War, yeah, it's the same mechanics. Remember that? Oh, Sam was like the enemy. Mm -hmm. And so, and there were many people who were afraid of us and we just either weren't aware, didn't know, or we forgotten. So we're dealing with the same thing now. And a lot of this is just ignorance, misinformation. And so you just have to, um, I think the best way to sort of get into the hearts of folks is it, it really is sharing the stories, you know, sharing the stories of um, who these people are and like that they, and emphasizing that they worked for the United States government, just like many of our did, yeah. elders did the same thing. And so um, I, I'm constantly floored. We've now settled 
we've helped to resettle two families and you know the rhetoric what you hear from them is they're like you know we've left people behind there are our family our friends we know people who are who are being killed beheaded targeted um investigated and they're so scared and i look at them and again i see that's our back on you know like all the years that they were afraid um of their loved ones you know those who were able to come here to the united states thought about those who were left behind and protested and advocated for them and so i think we're beginning to see um a lot of that you know with our afghan community is this first wave feels this responsibility and this pull to make the world remember that there's a lot of others like them who are not so lucky and are still left behind and stuck in afghanistan so finding those similarities and sharing that with the vietnamese community I think is really important and it really is about having you know it's about having those like conversations um on an individual level one-on-one -on -one. but you know we do have to accept that there are some misconceptions that are there yeah because yeah that's my, and i would yeah, add oh sorry i would so also add that you know if our um if we just constantly look for the differences we can find it in, in anyone and anything you know a, a good friend of mine actually she was telling the story of how uh, she's vietnamese uh from the south and her uh future husband was from the north and her parents were so focused on that that he was from the north and she's from the south and you know from optically from anyone else looking in it's like oh wow they both are doctors you know Vietnamese and all that so there's a lot of commonality but because they were so focused on this one difference, difference yeah. that you know their marriage wasn't going to even happen because of that and so anyhow I think that when we focus on those things um we will constantly find it however if we try to look more at the similarity right you know the Afghan family that we're in right now they have let's say larger family size than your typical American. That's exactly what happened to us when we first came, right? You know, these right. Americans were shocked that, you know, like one of our volunteer, her family has 13 people. It's like, what, <laughs> you know? Normal for Vietnamese. So, but yeah. us, we get it because I mean, when you're you're in a war-torn country and you're kind of like poor, that's when people tend to have more kids, you know, because their kids are dying off. And so, and we also see the, the even in the Muslim culture, you know, when you look at the outside aspect, sure, they dress differently than us, but, but you can also argue that when we first came, you know, a lot of people assume all of us are Buddhists and we're going to be lighting incense wherever we go, you mm -hmm. know, <laughs> that's not true either. And so, so I think that, you know, uh, there's a lot of commonality. Their religion is really rooted in family and community. And that's also part of our culture, you know. So I would encourage our own Vietnamese community to look at it more from that lens than all the differences. Do you find that the people that reach out, um, the Vietnamese people that reach out are more aligned with uh, the mission of getting them resettled and they don't really give you sort of their theoretical mindset of the differences? Or um, are there people that really are coming and say, hey, don't do this? We have not had anyone tell us, don't do this. Yeah, I have not right. experienced that. Wayne, have you? Like, I, no. I'm very thankful for that. Um, yeah. We have not experienced that. I think that there is, though, this idea that somebody will take care of it. Somebody will take care of them. Okay, Why so that's what we're dealing with. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. And I mean, I heard through the grapevine that, you know, it's not directed at me, but it's one of these things where I hear through the grapevine that someone would say, oh, yeah, you know, it's like uh, the, the, the Afghan were like, they're not the same refugee as we were, you know, implying that somehow we were better and so on. But uh, but no one has said that directly at me or uh, written to Viet Phi Afghan. All the people that have reach out to us, they're super supportive. I mean, I've been kind of floored at um, this sort of movement that we have created because I'm just seeing like Vietnamese name popping up from all around, around the country in terms of donation, in terms of even volunteer, you know, and uh, how they want to form their own circle. And so it's really touching in that aspect. There was a, there's a great, I, I think that, um, I think this is triggered. This is triggered um, memories for an awful lot of people, both like the younger generation and the older generation. And I think it's encompassed in one of the anecdotal stories we heard was we have an Afghan co-sponsor who works at the airport. And he told us, and he wasn't even, as when we sat down recently for dinner, it was like all of these similarities. We were like, oh my gosh, your culture too, us too. Oh my gosh, you feel left behind, so do we. You know, and like just all of these things that were, they didn't realize they felt alone. But I remember he was like, wow, I work at the airport. And one day they were, uh, I got a call and they said, you have to go down to baggage claim because there's, there's a Vietnamese man who won't go away. And like, so he goes out to baggage claim and it was like, you know, one of our like Vietnamese back or Jew, and mm -hmm. he had brought his own homemade sign. And he's like, where are the refugees? I'm here to welcome them. You know, it was and, so touching. I mean, it was like so cute. And he was like, he didn't realize he just thought that you know it's like he can come at any point and there's going to be a ref like afghan refugees at the airport and i think that was he was he was remembering the welcome he got you know what when a beautiful he arrived. story and so he just randomly showed up and he's like we walked around and you know and i just i'm like i'm sorry no afghan refugees you know but the gesture he's like now i understand i didn't know why they told me to go down there because he was looking for afghans <laughs> you know and so wow. Um, you know, I think that that just that gesture in itself, like, is um, was just super moving. But yeah, so I, I, I would like to focus on the fact that we are a very compassionate, um, very compassionate Gondam, and we're not that far from we are not not that far removed at all, like from the experience of being otherized of being new, you know, of fearing for our lives and just wanting a shot, a chance to come to America and try to make something of ourselves, you know, like, yeah. That yeah. story is so cảm động. I want to rip nước mắt. Oh, really? It really is touching. Um, yeah, that that is such a moving story, and I wish that there were more like it. Now, how many Afghan refugees are there right now in the United States? Oh, the exact number is really hard to to pin down. That are uh, waiting for about, that are waiting for oh, sponsorship. waiting for so the latest data show around twenty seven thousand that are still in military bases that need to be resettled, and that's kind of like the number that we're focused on because what we want to do is activate more Vietnamese and, and other community too. It doesn't have to be Vietnamese, but you know to step up and help sponsor uh, these folks so that they can. Uh, begin anew, you know, it's it's tough when you went through all the things that you've done, uh, you have to go through to be evacuated and then, you know, to be stuck in the military base in the dead winter, right? And so, um, yeah, 
I think big picture, I think it's um, it might be easier for people to understand sort of what like they have been coming. Afghans have been uh, coming as refugees to the United States over the last decade or so. It's just that many of those um, and these are people who served with the U.S. military. So they have a special immigrant visa and um, they've come in small numbers to the United States. But then with the influx, what happened is at the end of August, they were able to evacuate about 120,000 or so Afghans um, who were considered at risk or who were affiliated um, with foreign forces in some way. And so that was the mayhem at the airport in the days following the fall. So roughly 120,000 came out. I think it is scary, the similarity, because it's about 120, yeah. 125,000 Vietnamese who got out in 1975 before April 30th. In this case, it was they evacuated them before August 31st. And so once those people were removed, they took them to military bases all over the world. And with a number of them, I think it was like 70, 80,000, that's not verified. A good number of them were brought to the United States. And again, that similarity of no one knew what to do with the Vietnamese refugees. So they put them in bases across the United States where they were languishing for months until sponsors were willing to step up in communities all across the United States. It's the exact same thing at this point. These people are waiting and their status is very uncertain. And I think this is very important to, for people to remember too, in that when Vietnamese left, when we fled, many of our families didn't couldn't even bring anything. And we were considered, we, we didn't even have status. We were just stateless at that point. And that's the same case with a lot of these folks. And now they're stuck and it's hard to verify information because they left so quickly. And so there's kind of a bureaucratic hell that many of them are sort of stuck in, you know? And so I think that, you know, the outside world is so focused on, they need to go through a process. They need to like show proper documentation. And I think that's one of the things that we've learned through hearing these stories of people coming out of the military bases is it's so difficult um, every step of the way, like getting out is just the first step. And then it's really, really hard to move forward. And in a lot of ways, our U.S system and how we're working and how we're processing this, you know, we're making it harder, you know, for these people. And again, you have to go back to the Vietnamese experience. It took, it took time to, uh, for them to process us and to get us out, you know, into the communities like around the country. And so just um, super similar, uh, very similar situation. And some of these people are considered, they have special immigrant visas. Many of them are what are called humanitarian parolees. Um, Wynn can explain that better than I can, but I think it's very important um, the, the the discussion that we need to be having about this is to not otherize and say these are random people who don't deserve to be here. Um, you know, I, I'm very, very concerned about that, that narrative of being out there. Wynn, do you want to expand on that at all? Yeah, so one of the things that, you know, I, I thought I really kn knew about the Vietnamese journey but I didn't until I started digging uh, into this project, you know, and one of the, the misunderstanding I had was that when we came as refugee in 1975, you know, the country basically took us in, you know, gave us residency status and all of that. It's not true. Is that we were evacuated, we came and it looks, the journey looks very much like uh, what the Afghan are going through right now. And we were uh, considered humanitarian parolees. And so what that does is that it allows you a temporary stay in the United States. 
but that doesn't mean that you can stay permanently and you are at risk of being deported, similar to what a lot of Afghans are going through right now. When they're being evacuated, they are just more, uh, on a humanitarian parole status. And so, and as Tan mentioned, you know, the process is not smooth, right? I mean, this is chaos. This is like an emergency. So it's not like everybody has the proper paperwork in hand, you know? And the, some come from the villages. So it's not like they can just go home and suddenly grab their birth certificate and so <laughs> forth. Right. And so it's a very chaotic process and a layer of bureaucracy that we put in to just make these folks um, justify why they can stay in this country after we actively as a nation airlifted them out is it, frankly re really ridiculous and we did the exact same thing during the Vietnam War you know during 1975 and so you would think that we would have learned from that process and not do the same thing to the Afghan community we're doing exactly the same and so uh, so yes, the, the the journey for them is still very hard. Even the families that we're helping right now, because you know, like there's mistype in in the name, and that that happened to even my own name. You know, it's mistype, and then it just doesn't look exactly like how it is on the paper, and they they, they you're faking it. You know, and in my case, you know, like. Or how Vietnamese people write our name, right? Some, we write the last name first and the first name last kind of thing. And then, right. you know, when you're not familiar with that, you flip it around. Or in my case, you know, they ended up writing my middle name first instead of my first name. And then so things like that, it just becomes so, so much of a headache because in that time when they're waiting for their documentation to, um, uh, to finalize, you know, uh, including just social security number, they can't work, they can't uh, have access to certain benefits and so forth. And so, and, and, and of course that's uncertain future, right? That uncertain future that, can I really stay here? You know, and uh, some people would argue, well, of course you could, you know, where else are you gonna go? And I honestly don't know where else they're gonna go. So why are we making this process so hard on them? And so, yeah, anyhow. Um, yeah, I mean, if I'm thinking about it just from a lay person, I'm sitting here going, well, and I'm just thinking out loud and I wanna get this resolved in my mind, like I have a lot of fear and that's just me in my own head. And it's not even a fear of Muslim or Christian or anything. It's just a fear of another person. Like I think about like some stranger entering in my life and I have young children and how do I know who these people are? I think that's like the base fear of humanity. We, we, we struggle with this and we forget that, you know, my parents were sponsored by this generous um, church family and, and the fear is what holds me back or not even holds me back. It slows me down because I've been asked to, 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 to participate and become, you know, one of the five of a team. And um, I'm, I'm doing it, but in my mind, I'll, I'll be honest with you, there are hesitations. There's, you know, I'm, and I'm walking in a layman's shoes, layperson's shoes when it comes to this sort of thinking. So it's like, okay, is there a background check on this family? Do we know Kililit, right? Do we know the history of the family? What, what do we know? And so that is really what slows me down. Um, how do we break free from that way of thinking? Well, I think you answered your own question. 
First of all, nyak yay. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes uh, I have to ask but, for the, no, the but, public, but right? I, the John Q you, public, I'm asking questions for, you, you know. You answered your own question. Somebody, a sponsor family, gave your family a shot. And, and all I'm they still knew, dealing with all they the knew. fear. Think yeah. about it. I'm still dealing with the fear, even though my family was brought, you know, it's just, right? We're just always in this defensive position like we don't want people to come up in our space and yeah. so you know that's one of those things where yes i have to get through this and i have to grow from this experience but you know one thing i think i've learned in this whole process too is that gets for afghans is not going to be able to help everybody right um i am not going to be able to help everybody and just watching the first two families that are group has um, sponsored um, or helped to sponsor, I think the biggest lesson that I'm seeing from this is like, wow, um, I think this is setting yourself up for success. It means like having a group of people around you to do this with you, who you trust, who you like, and you can rely on each other to help a family, you know, focus on like little tiny steps. If a lot of us focus on small steps, small things, have a group of friends that we like and that we trust and know what they're doing, you know, to help us through this, it makes it a lot easier. So you don't have to take on the full burden yourself. And I think that's where I like, I'm not able to be part of a sponsor circle. I just don't have the bandwidth, you know, to do it. But, um, and Wien can talk to you about how she is a part of a sponsor circle. So she can tell you um, the key to sort of like success, you know, and reaching out um, to a family. But I have just found that even from the outside, it's like you just help in whatever little ways you can. And if you're not ready to house or befriend or spend a lot of time with the family just yet, it, you need to build that trust. And it just, it's one step at a time. It's, you know, agreeing that I want to be part of something. I'm going to do this with my friends and with other people. We're going to get to know this family, um, one family, not not everybody, but just one family, just get to know them and understand what is their story and what brought them here? What did they do for the United States? And I think once you humanize these people and once you see those kids' faces, Ken, oh my gosh, you'll be mush, mm. you know? <laughs> I mean, you'll totally be mush. But Wien, like you have, Wien has the direct sort of, you know, you've got the, you are a sponsor yourself, so you can add on to that, to whatever. Yeah, I, I, actually, that was my next question. Can we humanize a family that you have, um, in, you're in contact with right now? So we can put sort of this, quote unquote, uh, a face to the people that we are talking about right now. Can you describe it? Describe the yeah, family. Yeah, no, I don't really go to uh, into that. I, I wanted to address a little bit of what you were talking about, you know, in terms of just fear and all of that. I think the first thing to overcome come any fear is to admit that you have the fear i think sometimes people try to play to hero too much you know honestly or act as if they're braver than they are and it doesn't allow you to take a step forward or sometimes it just it's i i find it to uh to be more honest when you're just like you know i don't know i don't yeah, know anything about their culture i don't know, even know how to interact you know and that's what we did honestly because a lot of people just assume that we're yeah. like this expert actually the first step we did was like we don't know we don't know, you know, and then so in our case, it's more, it's more about the culture. Um, going back to just like stranger, joking as uh, joking, but not so joking. Most people get killed by people in their own family and people didn't know. <laughs> not by stranger. <laughs> Data have shown that. 
that's a good point. I'm joking really good point. aside, but you know, in some way, you get kind of just kind of like, okay, it, 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 we, it's not logical, right? I mean, that the joke is meant to to really say that we're not being logical when we have these kind of fear. But then the second of all, at least for me, you know, I started hosting people on Airbnb before Airbnb was a thing, you know, and I hosted, you know. Um, foreign student coming at my house even before it was a thing too. And part of it is because, you know, when I came here as a young child, you know, unaccompanied minor, I really didn't have much of a, a network, if you will. And so I had no choice but to kind of like reach out to other people. And part of that process, I was like, people are really nice and friendly. It really was. Um, uh, and they are, you know, and so I think that um, if you need to just go ahead and take the baby step that you need to get comfortable. But I, I would say like for my own world, uh, all the people that I have met, especially the ones that are different from me have really enriched my life. You know, mm. I, I've now traveled to more than 80 different countries and I was like, God, I, I really am grateful to be alive during this period where I can see all these different culture, be part of it, you know, right. where, where else? I mean, there, I, where else are you going to have the opportunity for Vietnamese and Afghan to really bridge a community like we do in America, you know? And so, so I think it's such a great opportunity. Anyhow, going back to your question about the family. So the family that I'm a sponsor in is a family of six. The father was working on the U.S. side, and unfortunately, he was um, shot by the Taliban when he was still in Afghanistan. Uh, he didn't get the proper medical <clears throat> care that he needed, partly because it's, it's supposed to be a decently long procedure, you know, of care. Um, they, him and his wife are, are young. They're in their late 20s and wow. they have four young children. Yeah. So for, that's very for, young. For, it is very young. In, in our kind of like current time, you know, we're like, wow, that's young. But when we look back at our parents, we're like, oh, okay, that, it's not that young, mm -hmm. right? Because our parents started having kids fairly early too. And so anyhow, he was in uh, the military base and the military base um, doctor basically told them, told him that he probably would need more care and possibly surgery for his leg. But because they don't have an operating room in the, the military base, he couldn't get that care. So you can see where the urgency comes in, right? Because here is the father and the breadwinner of a family of six with young children. And if he end up losing his leg and become paralyzed because of that, because of the lack of medical care, because of the lack of just and, and just flux of everything that has been going on in Afghanistan in evacuation then that family could be kind of doomed for the future. So for us, we started hustling as soon as we can, you know? And even right now, he doesn't really have medical benefits yet because there is a bottleneck in, not bottleneck, there, there are issues with us getting the right proper documentation for him. And going back to the question of, you know, some folks thinking that these folks are not supposed to be here, you know, like they should have gone to the, the, the visa process. They shouldn't uh, be evacuated and all that. A lot of these folks were actually in the queue to get their visa, but the visa process is like two or three years and some even five years. So that doesn't mean they don't qualify. That doesn't mean they were not working with the U.S. government. They all were. 
it's just it's like it's this tedious long process and then suddenly you know we decided to evacuate we decided to leave so all of this is very sudden for his family right and so anyhow um going back to the paperwork and so on you know we're having issue getting all the proper documentation for him and in the meantime his medical care has been delayed and so essentially what i did was i tapped into some of my medical friends uh, community and then uh tomorrow he's actually getting free medical care from one of this doctor who decided to step up wow. and possibly you know might get early surgery too uh but there's a lot of i mean they're humans right they're, I, they're, someone who is probably listening to this podcast right now who might have been in the exact same situation because we know a lot of back in june and um that went through the same thing they were shot they didn't get the care you know they have young children wife that you know might not be capable or or have the skill set to be breadwinner in this family so there's a lot of at stake for this family right now you know i um I think about my own family situation and 46 years ago when my parents got here, um, I think sometime in October to um, Fort Indian Town Gap and they got sponsored out. And uh, it, was a, it was a church family. Um, I don't know how they got subsidized or what motivated them. I keep, still keep in touch with the family. I'm very close to the family. But, um, you know, I think at the time it was like something like $4,000 that they had to show that they had um and i think congress had to step up and release funds maybe or i mean do you both know the history of subsidies or anything like that um so from what i'm from what i know i don't think they got much subsidy you know it wasn't until 1980 when resettlement agency was uh uh, formally established and through the resettlement agency they were funding that were given to resettlement agency and in some and then they start forming more like loose church circles and and group and all that you know and even now you you see a lot of groups supporting you know resettlement agency via the church and 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 jewish center and so on but back in 1975 it looked more similar to us yeah you know what we're doing right now is that uh, so the, the government required that we raise 2275 per individual that we're trying to help in a three-month period. So basically, you know, for three months, 2275 per person. So if you want to sponsor more people than that, you know, like family with six, you, you use 2275 and you multiply that by six. Wow. And we have to kind of um, show that amount. Some of us... Um, we have been able to generate that through our family. So for example, one other circle, you know, she was able to generate that through her family. The, some of us, we just fundraise, you know, uh, they don't really care where that money came from as long as we have the money. And that money is to ensure that we have the funding to take care of the family wherever needed. What we have found ourselves is that the community have stepped up in, in major, major ways. And I'm not even talking about Vietnamese community. Some, you know, uh, the story I have, I posted on my Facebook uh, about a week and a half ago. I was like, I need two used cars for these two family that we sponsor. And within a week, we got two used cars. <laughs> one from a Vietnamese woman and one from a Pakistani woman. Um, so, so anyhow, it's, it, um, 
I think back in 1975, it looked very similar to the circle that we're doing right now, not so much through the, the resettlement agency kind of model. I think there's always been some, I mean, eventually I think there was some federal funding, you know, like emergency funding or something that went to states, but it really was like, it was a private effort. It was communities and your sponsor, you can have this conversation with your sponsor while you still can about what they remember about what kind of support they got. My dad came in 78. Our sponsor was my uncle, my mm -hmm. my Joe, you know, and he had come at that first wave. And I remember my parents were like, they didn't give him money. I mean, they gave him money just to get us like a bed, a new bed or something. But um, my parents, by the time they came in 78, they got, there was federal funding. Um, there was a grant that was given, I think, to, to refugees at that time. This is before the 1980 um, Southeast uh, Refugee Act, you know, that came out. And so, um, so I, I think that this truly is, this is an incredible gesture by private citizens um, over a number of years. You know, that's what was happening. And it's what's happening now. Even though there is federal funding, there is um, a resettlement program. There are all these agencies that help refugees. What we're trying to do is supplement what they are doing. They're so tapped out and so um, just out of bandwidth at this point that we are taking it on ourselves. Let's try to go to the community. And um, this is a private sponsorship. Try to find people who share our values and want to help these families. So um, that's that's another, you know, your, your point and your experience brings up, um, uh, you know, just a reminder that like it's, it's citizens, like regular yeah. everyday people who are making this possible. And just like when you're selling product or services or anything, I think the awareness that we, or the lack of awareness that we're experiencing right now with the whole Afghanistan uh, crisis of the refugees, that's a big issue because there's no marketing dollars being put into social media or traditional media where we can say, hey, you know, this is a problem. We need help in the community at large. And I, I'm wondering in the 70, you know, in 75, did we, I mean, how did they get 130,000 people resettled within, I think it was, correct me um, if I'm wrong, it could have been a year. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we were yeah. resettled very quickly. I think it was three months, four months in the camp. Uh, so I, I could be way off, but it wasn't more than a year. And I don't think people stayed in, in the camps more than a year during that time. But I know at the time there had to have been some, you know, legislation and some activists or, you know, I know, um, Bakle Sun Kwa, I had him on the, the podcast, you know, he, but he was a little bit later because he came in the wave of 75. And so he helped resettle and, you know, then you have Jin Ho much later. But in the early days, I mean, how did they get that word out to get 130,000 people in the U.S. resettled within a year? That, that to me is a big mystery that we, you know, I'd love to know. Yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't pretend that I'm an expert in this whatsoever. You know, this has been a journey for me. I actually really thought when we started this, it's like, you know, resettlement agency were all set up in 1975 and all of that. And then suddenly all of us got dispersed, you know, mm -hmm. out to everywhere. And then, uh, but as um, I've been working with refugee kind of resettlement and helping refugee uh, even before Viet for Afghan was started. But one of the things that, you know, I learned along the way is that it takes bold leaders like, you know, Dan Evans to say, screw it. You know, yeah. we're going to do something in this state. 
And we're going to make sure that this is a priority for us, you know, because uh, they were people who would say things like, you know, uh, there are folks that need to be, actually Jerry Brown said this, you know, there are people that need to be helped here. Why, why are we helping Jeff, you know, uh, refugee family? And, um, and so bold leaders like Dan Evans say, no, we're going to resettle folks and we're going to resettle them in Washington state and we're going to be the leader in it. And, um, and so I, I don't know how they were able to, to scramble and got all 130,000 Vietnamese to be resettled. But I think if I had to bet, it's really just a lot of hustle mm. similar to how Viet for Afghan have been hustling. Cause I, I mean, I, the reality is that private citizen can do a lot if we, want to. Put our minds to it, yeah. I, I definitely, I agree. I agree with that. And I also want to, it's like on an individual level, like one of my personal heroes is a lady that everybody in the Vietnamese community in Washington state knew as Ba Fern. Her name was Fern. And that we only knew her first name. She was like Ba Fern. And she was a bus driver in Olympia, <sighs> Washington, who felt the call, saw the something, a clipping in the newspaper, Governor Dan Evans saying, we need the community to step up, raise funds, help these families, mentor them. And she's a very religious person and she's evangelical. And at the time she saw that, so she decided, okay, I'll help out, I'll do something. So she started by like, she was a bus driver, so she would transport refugees. And she started noticing refugees would come and they had nothing. So then she turned her home into this store, like free donation site. So refugees, she would pick them up, she would bring them to her home, they would go through and pick up their clothes and shoes. And she did this for thousands of refugees from Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos. And she did it for years with no recognition because she felt the call from God or whoever. She wasn't evangelizing. She wasn't trying to proselytize. She just felt, um, I talked to her before, right before, a couple of years before she passed away. She said, I just, God told me that this was my calling and I needed to do this. And she was this white lady who was getting pushback from the Olympia community. She said, I had people tell me, Fern, you know, you don't need to do this. In fact, you shouldn't. And she didn't listen to them, you know? And so it's, um, it's people like that, you know, and everybody in the community has had a touch point and knows like Buffern and she will forever have a place in our hearts, but it was people like that times however, however many around the country. It's just they're unnamed or we've forgotten about them, you know, or whatever, but we owe them a, just a debt of gratitude and it's, so it's one person times like times many. Before we get into the logistics of how this program works, can I ask you both how your own families, uh, parents uh, feel about the work that you're doing? Uh, you want me to start, Wien, or you want to go? <laughs> yeah, so um, I haven't really talked to my dad much about uh, the Viet for Afghan project, but before Viet for Afghan was, uh, Afghan started, I wrote, uh, I wrote an article um, and it got picked up by BBC, uh, um, uh, Vietnamese, and then I was also see on CNN and so forth. So basically, you know, I, I was getting media coverage for my work with uh, refugees, and uh, but part of that was that I decided to be open about my own story. 
And, um, and that includes telling the story of my mom passing, my younger brother passing, my younger sister passing, you know, and watching them perish in the middle of the ocean. And um, honestly, it's not a joy for me to do tell that kind of story. Every time you, you, you bring out that memory again, you know, it, it's hard. But so the question comes down to why am I doing it? And because, um, uh, you know, a lot of my friends, by the time I, I made it public, meaning that I, I became not only a supporter, but I can, became an advocate, right? I am like out there in your face telling you that we need to help refugees, like, and telling my own story. Like many of my friends back in junior high, high school, like they had no idea, you know? And I was never really... I have never been ashamed of being a refugee. I've never, you know, been ashamed of being Vietnamese. Actually, any close friend who would ask me, I would tell the story, but it's just not something that I felt like to talk about, especially in this country where a lot of people don't even know what refugee really mean, you know? It's just like, there's the disconnect. So when I decided, what made me decided to tell the story was um, when, I, uh, when I just, it was a combination of watching several things, but I remember hearing one person on TV making a comment that what kind of mother would let their kids, you know, this horrendous journey. And I just got triggered really quickly. Mm. I was like, the kind of people, that the kind of mothers are my mother, you know? And my mother was like, I, probably, the best mother I've, I can possibly ask for. I mean, we grew up with so much love and, so for me, it's like total bullshit that someone mm -hmm. would actually go on TV Question and kind of like just lynch a refugee and a refugee mom like that. And I just felt this calling that I would not do service to the life that my mom risked her own life for and the future and the, the, the opportunity I have if I don't stand up for all these refugees. So going back to the question about how my dad feels about this, um, he didn't like it. And it's not because that he didn't like that I was trying to help refugee community. He didn't like the fact that my mom's story was out there, you know, and that the the, the picture and and he said to me, Con de cho ma va em nghỉ, you know, mm -hmm. and then essentially let their soul rest. And so for me, it was never a thing about steering up their soul. But I also do believe that, you know, things that I witnessed, even though my father is older than me and I respect him and all of that, I also don't agree with him on this point. And this point is that what I witnessed as a 10 year old watching my mom perish away, watching my sister perish away, watching my brother perish away. If I can insert word in my mom's mouth, I would say that if she would tell me that, you know, if you live this journey and you have the opportunity to fight for people like us, like get people to 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 do something, you know. And so I'm more of having the calling from my mom's side, even though in my dad's world is like I'm not letting her rest. Uh, but it's okay. I I really feel that you know now I'm an adult. I can choose the path that I need to choose and. And luckily, my dad loved me very much. I, I am blessed with very two amazing parents. Um, and I do think that he deeply, deep down, he understand it. 
But I think for him, you know, by the time he lost my mom and my other two siblings, he already lost three other children. So he has gone through losing five children and a wife. So I get why for him, he just kind of want peace, right? I get it. I really do. So for me, this, this thing is not about stirring up, you know, like dirty laundry or anything like that. This is an opportunity to help people like my mother and my younger sibling. So it's an intense story. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, Tan, you want to add your piece? Um, I, I've sort of taken this on as like, this is, this is something I'm passionate about. I don't force my family to take action, to support mm. me. My parents have been, um, I have asked them for donations. You know, they have been supportive. Um, they don't stop me. They don't tell me not to do this. I think they're a little, um, in some ways, like bewildered, like, you know, like it's not, but it's like, you have this future and this life and you have skills and you can, you can move forward. Why? You know, like there's a little bit of like, this is a lot of energy, you know, and they understand and they know because they went through this experience themselves. And I think that I just recognize that like, I'm, I feel privileged. I'm in a privileged position to be able to take action and to do something. And I, I, I think a lot of our Vietnamese relatives, brothers and sisters have just been through too much. And I just don't, I don't expect them to take this up, you know, um, and to carry this um, to, to carry this work forward. Like I, for those of us who have energy and a desire to do something, you know, like to each their own, like, I don't, I just don't judge them for not being as involved, you know, as I am. And, and I'm very protective of them as well, because I've learned sometimes, you know, I, I'm a storyteller and my family is my ultimate muse. And, um, while I'm in a place to reflect and to look back and mm -hmm. to synthesize like what yeah. the story means, not everybody in my family is in that same place. And so I have to be respectful and I try, I don't want to hurt them. I try to not, um, I don't ever want anyone to think or for my family to feel that I'm exploiting them or exploiting their story for any kind of gain. So, you know, like Wynne was saying, like I have a very clear purpose for me. It's like, I know why I'm doing this. I know why I'm doing this. And it's, it's going to be, everyone is going to have their own, you know, sense of their own motivation, I suppose. And so um, it's my personal thing. It's my, my project, you know, I, I don't. Um, so, you know, that's, that's that, but I mean, my family is just, but they are overall incredible and they drive everything I do. I am who I am today because of them. And so I'll always be grateful, you know, for, for that, for their love and their support. Thank you both for those answers. What are the steps after somebody listens to this today and they say, I want to sign up and I want to do something? Yeah. So uh, one, they can just email us directly there. Uh, the best resource is on our website. So vietsforafghan.org. And then there's contact information. There it is a link for donation. There's link for, you know, um, uh, that uh, tell them a little bit more about the sponsor circle project and so on. I would say the most urgent thing that is needed right now is a combination of money or people stepping up uh, to be sponsor. Actually, if people, if enough people can step up to be sponsor, then we can move similar to what uh, you know, the 
community did in 1975. You can actually move 130,000 people within a year, right? And so right now we have about 27,000 left in the military bases that need homes and need to be resettled throughout the United States. If more people step up, that can be done within a month, you know? And so I would say that's probably the most urgent need. What will happen is that a lot of folks will feel very overwhelmed by this. And I get it. I mean, we felt very overwhelmed by it when we first started. But we actually had a meeting last night uh, with among the leaders of our team and also with the leaders of the Afghan community here. And we are in the process of forming what is called a, an advisory kind of team. And we are going to be committed to helping, you know, especially Vietnamese folks and Afghan folks, but really anyone who wants to step up to form their own circle and be kind of like the, the support team that is needed so that anyone, so, you know, Ken, if you get scared about being in part of that circle and not sure what to do with their family and so on, just reach out to us, you know, because we realize it is a, a, a hard Daunting, process. Yeah. And yeah, a lot of but, commitment, you know, yeah. well, just but for the very record, rewarding I've, too, right? Yeah, I've gone through the Sterling background, is it Sterling background? Exactly, uh, yeah. yeah. With, Jin Hoi walked me through it all and we he's formed a team he's formed a team uh, with a few of our friends so you know I'm on board and uh, but I just wanted to voice my fear and you know just be honest about my my yakness right yeah <laughs> oh, I'm glad you did because I think sometimes people they don't want to talk about it and because they don't want to talk about it, they still live with that fear and that fear keep them from doing anything. But by you voicing it, then at least, you know, you can bounce it off with other people, including us. And then we can work together to help overcome it. Right. And then that leads to action, because, again, we need people with action. We need people my, to step forward. I'm going to call my friends out. Tell me, yeah, we are. Um, yeah, but you have no, you you have the ultimate guide. Like Anjin Hoy is like the best, you know. Like he's just he's so experienced. You don't say no to him. I don't think no. you know. And I mean, we've had conversations with him, and we, you know, and it's it, it's great. So we're allies, you know, in this. But I think in the context of like, if people want to help refugees in general, then find out who your local resettlement agency is. Figure out what they want. And there's different agencies in every community. If you feel the pull. If you feel that you want to be a part of like the Viets for Afghans movement, I think we have accidentally found ourselves in this position of being um, first in some ways and having to help to model what allyship and what advocacy, you know, and what mutual aid looks like for Afghan refugees. So for those who feel that you share our mission um, and you want to get involved, like Lynn was saying, donations is one way to do it. We have a variety of um, projects and programs. We are still volunteer run. Um, we have very limited funds to like pay for an intern. Um, you know who can't who just can't do this work for free but um but we need like you know financial support we're also um we have a couple our two main programs that i think we're heavily focused on um one is the humanitarian parole program which is if you have legal skills or if you want to help to fund the applications for afghans who are trying to seek refuge um here in the united states if you feel the pull to do that to help those who are left behind and need support coming here there is a work stream here for you to get involved in um and then there's the sponsor circle which is our other 
you know, major program that we've been able to execute and to get two families sponsored. Now, um, I think we are interested in having an an umbrella sort of like a number of um, families that are affiliated and where we guide them you're under the fits for afghans umbrella um so to speak you know i think we are interested in that but 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 really we just want people to take action so if taking action means in your community um, means doing something different as long as you're helping refugees in the way that you want to help them do what you gotta do you don't have to it doesn't have to be with us you know um that would be on to that, uh, Ken, is that, you know, sometimes when people want to help, they think too big and they get overwhelmed and they just don't start at all. But, you know, as someone uh, who is part of the, the team and where we need so much help from the community, I would say one of the best way to just get started is be a reliable source for someone else for something. And it could be very small. Like if you come and you tell me that, and I'm going to reply to all your donors and thank them for the amazing you know donation they gave i would be so happy because you know like someone who does it on a consistent basis even if it's just a simple task like that would help us so much what we end up having is that we, uh, it's hard to find reliable volunteer it's very easy for us to find more like ad hoc volunteer you know like where there is uh donating something for just one-off situation but if you want to do something really meaningful for any of these organizations, it doesn't even have to be with be it for Afghan or just for the family. Just be the person who, who let's say, help them buy grocery every week. You know, just be someone that someone else can count on. I would say that is my biggest advice to anyone who wants to to make a difference. Yeah, that's a great motto. It's a great motto. Just we don't need to be doing the big things. It's just small things that uh, everybody's. Uh, comfortable with and that helps that goes a long way mm -hmm. I want to ask both of you um, after going through these uh, several turbulent months with this uh, work um, how has it changed your or let me ask you this what what does it mean to be Vietnamese to you now um, having gone through the experience of this uh, last few years uh, <laughs> you want to go first time <laughs> Got to start. I, I, I think that being Vietnamese means like being resilient, just resilient AF. Like um, when I think about the legacy, you know, that my parents are leaving for me and what they have been through, I will never be as badass as my parents. I will never have that courage to actually get on a boat, go out to sea, have it capsize, lose your friends in the process keep going, survive in a refugee camp for six months, come to the United States with nothing, not knowing the language, not knowing any of that. I think like that, like to me, being Vietnamese means being surviving day to day and being like super, super resilient um, and hustling, like just that hustle mentality. It's like survive another day. That um, to me, that's like, that's a, that's a big part of like who I am. It's like, what is, I, it's hard for me to think long term sometimes because I'm thinking about tomorrow, like how to resolve something tomorrow, um, which can also be it can also hamper you in a way. <laughs> sometimes I think this day to day survival mentality, but it's just when you think about what our families have been through over the last century, you know, or longer, um, if they can survive what they have survived, I can survive and I can thrive and do better, you know. And so to me, that's like a core part. I'm really proud to be 
um, Vietnamese because of because of the experiences that um, that my ancestors and my elders went through in order for me to have the life that I have today. So um, yeah, I mean that's that's the first thought that 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 comes to mind. Does that make sense? <laughs> yes, it does. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. 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 For me, my thoughts is kind of like all over the place a little bit on this one. Um, you know, I, I often get asked, like, how are you so resilient, you know, coming as an unaccompanied minor and, and overcoming so many life challenges? And my answer has always been the same. It's really I had such great models for my parents. You know, I growing up, you know, watching my father who became an orphan when he was nine like restarting his life multiple times because you know his livelihood was stripped away from him you know first re-education camp and then after that there were multiple situations when we tried to escape and of course you know some of us get put in jail most of the time it's my father you know <laughs> and get stripped away and then restart get stripped away restart and then by the time my you know, we left, meaning my mom and the rest of us, my dad was uh, still left behind in Vietnam and he got put in jail again, you know, this time for treason act and uh, organizing, you know, escape against the government uh, and doing all these things. But um, I tell that story because it's just like we, our community, we have so much trauma, but we also have so much strength. And that strength is really, it's just so amazing to me to watch, you know? And um, most of my friends, like when they meet my dad, unless I tell them all these backstory, they would never know the, all the trauma he went to. He's the one that, you know, gets up in the middle of a wedding and he would like chant, not chant, but recite some poem that he remembered when he was in ninth grade, you know? And just this joy and, and livelihood about him. And it just, um, and that is to me the Vietnamese people. It just we've been through so much as a nation, as people, as you know, a community. But uh, when we want to, we can actually really rise above all of it and just be like this, this joy that people don't expect. You know, when sometimes I'm I'm like floored by my father sometimes, where how he can be so positive about everything in life. I was like, wow, you know, <laughs> you really know how to model and, 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 and overcome all of this. So that's the first part, the thought I have. And the second part in specific to the Viet for Afghan journey, I'm actually, I mean, there are certain things that, you know, being an advocate, I do, you know, bring to the forefront regarding like the U.S. and how we can be better and so forth. But what has also has kind of, um, uh more like solidified for me in the last several months is like how amazing it is that you know we live in a country where vietnamese can come together with an afghan community and i actually told some of our afghan you know uh partners this and also our viet for afghan team that i think that when we look back in history 20 years from now washington state we have one of the strongest viet and afghan community and friendship. And that can only happen in countries like this, you know, very few countries and the United States being one of them. And that is really, to me, the power of the diversity of our nation, the, um, the fact that, you know, we do have certain friction, but we have such 
um, richness in this country that allowed that to happen. And I am I'm floored by our friendship with the, the Afghan community. Um, and I can't wait for uh, to see what will happen in the future also. You know, today is um, a privilege for me to sit with both of you, um, hard charging, you know, warriors out on, you know, on the front line of, of this sort of activism and advocacy to help uh, people who uh, have no idea uh, what what the future uh, lies for them ahead uh, of them. And so, you know, being able to sit here and listen and and take it all in from my point of view is is an honor. It really is an honor. And I thank you both so much for spending time. I know there's so much um, limited hours in your day, especially going into the next few uh, weeks here, uh, going on different shows. So I appreciate the time that you've both spent with me. Thank you so much. And thank you for all the work that you're doing in the community. Yeah, thank you so much, Ken. We thank appreciate you, Ken. it. And good luck, because uh, we're looking forward to hearing about your adventures as uh, a sponsor. <laughs> yeah, I think we should talk about it in a few months and, uh, you know, see what uh, see what it all turned out, what it's looked like. You know, I, yeah. I, I would love to get to know a few um, Afghan uh, families. Yeah, yeah. Bring on Jinhoi and Junam Lao, too. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Thank you so much once again. All right. Thank okay. you, Ken. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran and Javier Proenza. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts. Thanks again for listening.